that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Hello, and welcome to the Silver Screens Podcast. My name is Charles. Hi, I'm Chucky. So glad you could make it. The hosts are expecting you. Come play with us. Right this way to the dungeon. Please, watch your step and try not to trip over the corpses. I see dead people. You'll be joining the terrifying trio for tonight's talk. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Make yourselves comfortable on the couch right over there, and they'll be with you shortly. Oh, and one last thing. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. It's showtime. Scream Team, how you guys doing? Welcome to another episode of the Silver Screams Podcast, a podcast where three horror movie buffs watch scary movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Derek Schneider, and I am pleased, as always, to be joined by my wonderful co-host, Max Fosberg. Red Rob! And, making her triumphant return to the pod, Kristen Marlowe, ladies and gentlemen. What it is. It is so good to have you back with us. How's the little guy doing? He's doing good. Growing, right growing like a weed. Is he shining? He is shining. <laughs> now, when Max and I talked about this uh, this episode, we weren't sure if you were going to be back or not, which is why we called in our very first special guest co-host from the Excuse the Intermission podcast, Alex McCauley. Hello, hello. Uh, so, real quick, fun fact about this podcast is that in our original iteration of it, you were one of the co-hosts. Uh, we recorded a few episodes before our lives got in the way and we shelved everything, so it's good to have you back with us on the show. I had forgotten about that, but you're right. <laughs> so why don't you tell, take a minute to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, as you mentioned, uh, one of the hosts of Excuse the Intermission, which is another movie podcast where Max joins me along with our friend Grant, and each week we pick a different theme. So we, we kind of always try to make it topical, uh, and and we did a whole horror movie series back in October that you, special guest, hosted yes, on, Yes, I was Derek, on your guys' pod. For the uh, 70s, and then of course once we hit the 80s, the film that we're going to be talking about here today was a big topic of discussion as well, so I'm really happy to be back to talk about this film at length. Right on. So folks, as you know from last week's episode, uh, instead of rolling our selection dice for this film, we let our guests choose their favorite scary movie to watch and analyze. Alex, go ahead and tell us what movie you picked for us this week. I picked the 1980s classic, The Shining, uh, and it was tough. I, I actually was joking around with Max in our little text thread where I said, wow, this is going to be tricky. My, that's a very weighted question, your favorite scary movie, because <laughs> I'm a huge horror aficionado. And then a couple hours later, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to make this complicated, and I'm just going to pick The Shining. I've battled back and forth with it, and I'm sure we'll get into about is it really a horror film or is it something more like, I know you guys have already talked about Hereditary. Is it a family drama with just a few scary parts? Is it, because it's not a slasher, you know, it is somewhat of a ghost story. Where does it really fit? But I just decided, no, it's The Shining. It's my favorite. So let's go for it. Well, that's why we brought you in to talk about all those things and more. Uh, this is actually one of those films that I tend to go long periods in between viewings for some reason. It's it's really good, but it's just one of those ones that, like, you watch it, and then you're like, yeah, that was awesome. And then, like, next thing you know, it's been, you know, a year since I watched it and everything. Got to pop it back in. 
It's interesting going back and rewatching it this time. It, it really makes me want to go back and just go through Stanley Kubrick, the Stanley Kubrick Library. Mm-hmm. Um, it is probably one of the grand poopahs of of horror movies. I think. I, I'm sure we'll get into this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to jump ahead, yeah. but <laughs> excellent rewatch. Just uh, had a really good time researching and rewatching. Yeah. Now, while my family vacations were nowhere near as violent as the Torrance's, it got me thinking about vacations gone wrong. Uh, do you guys have any vacation horror stories, Kristen? Uh, I actually was at the Stanley Hotel last summer. Really? I was. I stayed there, um, my husband and I. And uh, it's not like a like a crazy horror story, but they we did a tour, a ghost tour, and they took us down to the basement and they're like, don't take any of the rocks down here. They're everybody who's taken one home. It like sends them back to the hotel and says that they have like, give them like bad luck or bad juju or bad shit happens to them. And so of course I took a rock back up to the room (laughs) with me and I set it on the nightstand. And later that evening, Luke was like, what? the fuck is that and I, and I was like oh just the rock from down in the basement <laughs> and then he said that I had to leave it um he like was so terrified of the stories <laughs> that he had heard that I couldn't bring the rock home so did, did anything happen in the room that night um no we heard like pacing in the hallway but we weren't sure if it was like people or not well yeah, and then but just it's a be, scary hotel just to be clear that's the one in Colorado that the interior is mm, based off correct yeah. Yeah. yeah just in case anybody didn't know <laughs> yes, Alex, how about sorry. yours so I have uh, another hotel-based vacation story here, and I'm going to take us back to the week of February 14th through the 18th of 1999. The setting is Squim, Washington, and we, my family, we are staying at the Red Lion Hotel. We were up there just as kind of like a weekend getaway sort of deal. Went to just go see the game farm that's up there. You know, those haven't aged all that well but that's not what we're here to discuss Um, um, what i'm going to talk about is another stephen king adaptation storm of the century i don't know if you guys ever saw that miniseries but it was airing on tv at the time and it's kind of this pseudo vampire-esque story where this unknown man comes to this town and surprise surprise northern maine and is there to kidnap children and kind of feed off their souls and things like that and he walks around with this dog head cane singing, I'm a little teapot. And it's terrifying. <laughs> and so here we are in this hotel room or in this hotel, watching it in our hotel room. And I'm just thinking, this dude's outside my hotel room, pacing up and down the halls. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear the I'm a little teapot tune, the jingle. Um, so, yeah, I was only nine years old at the time. My sister's six. Uh, I don't know why our parents were showing us yeah. things like this, but that's probably why I'm here saying that The Shining's my favorite film, yeah. uh, favorite horror film. So yeah, that, I'll never forget that though. Storm of the Century, if you haven't seen that miniseries, go look it up. It's pretty solid. How about you, Max? Nothing that really comes to mind. I mean, you know, I, I've gone camping, camping, I've gone camping, uh, and you think you hear things when you're out, when you're out in the woods. You know, maybe Bigfoot running around, but nothing, nothing in particular. Yeah, kind of in the same boat. Like my family didn't take a lot of like vacations, like long distance or anything like that. So unfortunately, I don't have any horror stories to share. Uh, But on that note, let's kick back over to you, Max, to tell us a little bit about the folks that gave us this Frozen family flick. All right. So The Shining uh, comes out uh, June 13th of 1980. It's, of course, directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. 
took around two years to, to do all the filming. Uh, the outside shots of the Overlook Hotel is the Timberline uh, Hotel in Oregon, while the insides are, are, are uh, in the studio, but they are based on the Stanley in Colorado. Uh, starring in this uh, movie, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall, Wendy Torrance, Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance, uh, Scatman Crothers as Holloran, and Barry Nelson, who actually was the first ever on-screen James Bond as Ullman. Mm. We also have a couple other Kubrick uh, alum. Philip Stone and Joe Turkle have worked with Kubrick before. Joe Turkle was in The Killing. And then Philip Stone is uh, the father of Alex in Clockwork Orange. Uh, Kubrick was not happy after Barry Lyndon came out. And so he was looking for something to do a, a little bit more commercial, uh, which he wanted to do a horror movie. He was offered a whole bunch of projects, including The Exorcist, which he turned down. There's a famous story that he bought like every supernatural book that he could find in a bookstore, and he would read them in his office, and if he didn't like them, he would throw it against the wall after, like, what, two or three minutes? The assistant would sit there all day outside of his office and just hear thuds on this wall constantly, and then... Finally, there was no thuds, and he, when she came in, he was, you know, knee-deep into The Shining. Uh, the Shining, of course, is written by Stephen King, uh, which it was his third novel. I think uh, so. Salem's Law and Carrie had come out before. Mm-hmm. So kind of like on his, his rise of, of horror writing fame. You know, the funny part about that story, too, is that uh, Stephen King, when he heard this, like came out and said that he found it a little odd because he felt that uh, the beginning of The Shining it started off very slow and was surprised that Kubrick stuck with it. Well, King famously disowned this movie as soon as it came out, mm-hmm. and this and we we should say this movie was kind of panned when it when it first hit theaters. Uh, a lot of people did not like it, didn't understand it, thought it was too long, thought it was boring, and plus a lot of people I felt I feel like were kind of on Stephen King's side just because he was a young up-and-coming writer apparently he had written a screenplay and sent it to Kubrick and Kubrick read it once and threw it away said (laughs) I'll write this myself uh, which he co-wrote with uh, Diane Johnson who is another novelist (laughs) so again kind of another like fuck you to King Uh, Stephen King has I think he's consistently always said that like he still, to this day, doesn't like this movie. Yeah. Which is odd to think about, because personally, I think this is probably, if not the best, one of the top three best Kane adaptations to film. I feel like that's probably why he doesn't consider it good even to this date, is because it's hard to call it a Stephen King adaptation, just because of all the changes that Kubrick mm-hmm. has made and kind of the subtle middle fingers that he sends king's way throughout the film <laughs> right yeah well it's never happened to me like i can definitely sympathize with that like having this source material that you've you know poured your you know your life into oh and the shining and the novel is an extremely personal project to mm-hmm. stephen king yeah and to have that like give it up to somebody else to like you know take the reins and you know turn it into something that people can see and to have it just completely like torn apart and rearranged and everything like that's got to be a very you know a tough thing to deal with 
Well, yeah, and especially after he's, I mean, still to this date, people are at a, um, adapting his books and making high-quality films. I, I, he famously has really liked the last couple of inter- the iterations of the It books. Um, and then, yeah, coming off of the success of something like Carrie, where De Palma takes that, and that becomes a huge hit, one of the biggest horror movies of its time. You know, he's probably thinking, okay, this is going to go great for me, this whole screen to, or this novel to screen relationship that I'm going to have with these different directors and auteurs as well. I mean, directors with great visions. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of the big mysteries, kind of. I, I kind of missed in this in the research, but I wonder how involved he was with the production of Carrie and De Palma. And how that reception was, and if this was just completely opposite, and that also kind of played into some of his hate. It could. I know he gave Kubrick the the green light at the beginning to do whatever he wanted. Well, of course. I mean, Kubrick's coming off. I mean, Barry Lyndon was was a was a, is a great movie and a great film, but it was a commercial. Uh, Failure, but before that, I mean, we've got... He's already made 2001 and A Clockwork Orange. I mean, two of the greatest films in film history. Yeah, so I can understand just trusting him with the source material, but then, yeah, when it backfires, he can kind of... He only had... There's only one person to blame, and it's himself, which could kind of be a reason why he still, to this day, disowns it. It's interesting, too, because I've never read the book. Mm-hmm. Have, have, I have uh, read the book, uh, yeah. Stephen have? King's one of my favorite yeah. authors, yeah. I what, have as well. Yeah. What, uh, as far as the book and the movie, like, what's the biggest, like, difference? I, or, well, I mean, I, I know there's lots of differences, but how do you, how do you feel, like, what, what, what kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm looking over at Alex. He's got like a whole, he's got like a whole <laughs> list of what is different. Um, no, Alex, no, you start. You start. Let me fill in. Well, the biggest part, and this goes back to how personal it is to King, uh, the demons that the Jack Torrance character has to face in the book are, uh, they're built up much more gradually. And his descent into madness comes, comes at more of a... It comes at the hotel's expense a lot more where he finds this scrapbook in the boiler room and the boiler room is kind of like this. It, it's not even in the film, but the, yeah. bo- the boiler room is a huge part of the novel. And once he finds this scrapbook, that's kind of like his gateway into being possessed throughout the film. Whereas a lot of the criticism of the movie when it first came out was people thought he just kind of, you know, the, the title cards that we'll talk about. All of a sudden, you get that one month later one, and he, he's just kind of already, you can tell he's, he's mad. And so in the book, you get, yeah, and like what you were saying, the beginning is a lot slower. Um, the Wendy character isn't as feeble. And so you get kind of this, uh, this back and forth between her and Danny, and then the relationship between Danny and Jack, where there's a lot more innuendos of abuse and things like that that are in the movie. But the book plays them up much more carefully, I guess. And that's, you know, it's just, it's a lot more, you have to find the nuances in the movie to pick those up on, whereas in the book, they're just right there for you. As it, with most novels are, you get a lot more detail. And yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of other things that we can talk about here, but like in the book, Scatman Crothers doesn't die. In, <laughs> yeah. in, in the book, Jack dies in a much different way. Uh, what else do I have here? Dak, um, Dick and Danny their shining ability is out there on front street. They're talking about it a lot more. People know that Danny's kind of like this kid genius who has this ability. And when uh, Dick Halloran's back in Colorado going up to the overlook, he's telling people about his shining ability. Whereas in the film, he's kind of lying about why he has to go back up to the hotel. So yeah, there's, 
the and this goes with a bunch of Stephen King's work, but it's just way more fantastical. You know, Danny's Danny at the end is kind of chased by this like evil entity that Jack has like created as opposed to I mean, there's no hedge maze in the book. And so so, you know, Jack's not chasing him doing the Danny boy in in the book as much as or as he is as much as he is in the movie. So, yeah. Yeah, I I guess I've always taken in the movie where he Jack, I think, shines as well. And he is already mad when you first meet him on screen. Uh, I've never, I've never seen it as like, oh, a month later, and he's been alone for so long, he's just crazy now. Because like in that, in the beginning of the interview, I, and I don't know if we're, I'm jumping ahead here, um, but uh, he 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 plays it very like kind of crazy. Well, same yeah. with in the car ride up to the house, where he's just like, you see, see? he saw it on the television. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The mini series, which we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, which absolutely. Is my, the 90s. I've is never my seen favorite. That I don't know how you haven't. So, so there a mini series came out um, on television, and the way that I understand it is that Stephen King was so pissed off about the original Shining that he was like, "Fuck you!" When he could get the rights to it, he recreated this mini series, um, which he had a huge hand in. So it, it's very closely like more close to the actual story of of the book and what he wanted it to be um and he chooses the things that he he hated about the shining so you get to see it at the stanley hotel which is where he wanted it to be mostly filmed at which kubrick didn't want to do and he wanted to do it at the overlook um or the timberline lodge sorry and uh it's just yeah i mean like I think if you haven't read the book and you wanted to watch a movie that was more closely to the book, you should watch the miniseries. I, I think it's also interesting how you said it, uh, the book is just more fantastical because the sequel, Doctor Sleep, which came out, was that last year? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, yeah, I guess it is last year, right? 2020? 2019? Some, somewhere Two years there. ago, I think. Um, that Going into that and watching that, and again, not reading the book, just kind of being like, oh, this is the sequel to... Stanley Kubrick's Shining, that was much more fantastical and threw me threw me off because I was like, oh, this. I mean, yeah, you, you kind of recreate some some stuff from from The Shining, but this doesn't feel like The Shining to me. Well, and going back to what you said, and we'll probably bring this up later, but Jack's ability to shine, I feel like, gets kind of lost uh, in the the Stanley Kubrick version even though he obviously is seeing these ghosts and he's able to shine and see things that have happened in the past at this hotel, but it's in the novel where Danny's ability to shine is so strong because it's been passed on. It's a hereditary thing. Mm -hmm. And he's actually able to pull his dad out of it at the end. And Jack kind of has this moment of reverence where he saves, he he allows Wendy, uh, Danny and a wounded Scatman Crothers, the Dick Halloran character to escape via the snowcat and then he stays behind as the boiler room explodes and it kind of burns down the hotel yeah i don't know if i like that ending that's the real <laughs> ending <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like frozen jack yeah. frozen frozen jack is iconic <laughs> stephen king is notorious for writing endings that no one enjoys this that is, is true. very much like his mo like people do not like the endings to his books most of the time so, The Shining revolves around the Torrance family, recently located from Vermont to Colorado. We have the father, Jack, a former school teacher turned writer, the mother, Wendy, a ghost story and horror movie fanatic, and their young son, Danny. And I think maybe we can include Tony in the family, too, since he lives in 
uh, Danny's he's, mouth. He's the boy who lives 100%. in his mouth. Well, okay. I, even though we just said we weren't going to do this. But, like, <laughs> Here we going go. back to the book, at the very end, you find out that Danny's middle name is Anthony. Oh. So there you go. Tony. So is there a Tony, like finger thing going on in the book uh no that was actually uh no, i read added? i read up on this that was improv by uh danny lloyd really uh, in his in the audition and everything and Kubrick kubrick's said, like Keep fuck it. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh so the film starts off with jack taking a job high up in the mountains at the overlook hotel he's hired on with his family to maintain the hotel during its dark months from october to may when the roads are too dangerous and too costly to keep cleared for guests while he accepts the job, his employer, Mr. Ullman, warns him that the winters can be very harsh and the isolation can get to people. They had an incident in 1970 where the caretaker who was hired went mad and ended up murdering his wife and twin daughters. And this movie is set in, the, in 1980, correct? So it's supposed to be like 10 years ago this caretaker killed his wife and daughter? Yeah, I don't know if there's any like direct indication of when exactly this movie takes place. They just mentioned the winter of 1970. I think you're supposed to assume, based off the way people dress and the mm-hmm. hairstyles yeah. and things yeah. like that, that yeah, it's it's being it takes place at the time of its filming. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we then get to meet Jack's wife, Wendy, back at home with little Danny. She's asking him about how he feels about going to live in the hotel, and while he's indifferent about it, his imaginary friend Tony, who Danny voices with a more gruff voice while moving his finger up and down, is very much against it, but he won't tell Danny why, at least not verbally. While brushing his teeth, Danny has sudden visions of twin girls in a hallway and a flash flood of blood pouring out of an elevator into what looks to be a hotel lobby. Now, continuity seems to be a little bit flimsy in this film. Uh, the early scene in this early scene, we see Danny's sandwich get inhaled in a matter of seconds. Like at one point, he has like two bites out of it. And Can then we talk about the way he the- eats the sandwich too, <laughs> like from the from the top towards the middle. Mm-hmm. It's really odd. Yeah, and then in a matter of seconds, and this is probably because of Kubrick's insistence on doing takes over and over and over and over and over again. The sandwich is like almost completely gone by the next time it like turns to him, and it's only been like a second. <laughs> uh, so Danny passes out after having the vision and wakes up in his bed with his mom and a doctor at his side. The doctor asks Danny some questions about what happened, but he doesn't remember. They he leave passed the- out from a food coma. That's what happens when you eat the sandwich too quick. Well, also with the continuity, and I don't know if we want to just like jump into conspiracies right away, um, because in this scene, when, he, when you first see Danny in the bathroom, uh, there is a sticker on his door of Dopey. One of the, uh, like the seven doors. One of the seven doors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which they, you find out later that they call him Doc, right? And then when the doctor is in the room, and, or is leaving the room with, with Wendy, it's very obvious. And it's almost like they, they want you to see that Dopey, that Dopey sticker is gone. So it could be continuity. It could be Danny now is not a dope anymore. He's so, woke. He's yeah. woke to the uh, experiences that are going to befall him once right. they get to the Overlook Hotel. That's yeah. how I see it. I think Kubrick's too much of um, too much of a too much of a freak, right? I mean, yeah. like he's way too meticulous just to let mm. something like that slip. And who's gonna just also walk by and be like, "We don't want this dopey sticker on the door anymore. Right. Let's rip it, rip it off." Oh, well, and not even ripped off. I mean, like cleanly gone. Right. Um, and there's there's going to be a lot of weird continuity. I also watched in preparation for this the the documentary uh, Room Two Three Seven. You know, we're it, I, I definitely want to jump into like some of the weird conspiracies uh, around this movie. 
So they leave Danny to rest, and the doctor asks Wendy a series of questions in the living room, and here we find out that Tony wasn't always around. He started showing up after an accident involving Jack coming home drunk and yanking Danny's arm out of place. After sobering up, Jack apologized profusely and promised never to drink again. The Torrance family arrives at the Overlook on their final day of operation for the season, and Danny has found his way to the game room and is visited by the twin girls from his vision. Meanwhile, staff are seen cleaning the entire hotel while the family is shown around the grounds, including the giant hedge mace. Danny reunites with the family in time to meet the hotel's head chef, Dick Halloran, who takes Wendy and Danny to see the kitchen. After showing them around, Dick refers to Danny as Doc, which Wendy notices and asks him about how he knew that they called him that. Mr. Halloran dismisses it and claiming it is just sort of a coincidence, but something seems off as Danny, staring at Mr. Halloran, hears him ask if he'd like some ice cream telepathically. As they're wrapping up the kitchen tour, Dick takes Danny over to get some ice cream and asks if Danny knew how he knew his nickname. He tells Danny that he and his grandma used to have long conversations without ever talking. She called it shining, and he told him that lots of people can do it without knowing it. While they're talking, Danny asks Mr. Halloran if he's afraid of the hotel and what is in room 237. Mr. Halloran tells him that nothing is in there, but he must never go into that room for any reason. Now, we'll see room 237 a few times throughout the film, obviously, but Alex, you were telling us that there's a connection between Kubrick and room 237. What's that all about? Well, so this kind of goes uh, back to one of Max's conspiracy theory points. And and for me, I think along with this, you know, there's some other things that we'll talk about with Native Americans and stuff like that. But this is the one that I find most fascinating because a lot of people think that room 237 is Kubrick dropping hints that he was asked by the United States government to reshoot the lunar landing that we had here in the United States back in the 60s. And it makes sense, especially when you watch that documentary, Room 237, because you find out that the original room in the book is 217, and that by request of the people at the Timberline Lodge in Oregon, that it was changed so Kubrick had, you know, he could have changed it to any number that he wanted. He chose room 237. Turns out that the moon is 237,000 miles away from Earth. And then there's all these um, technical aspects. And Max, maybe you can kind of help me talk about horizon lines and things like that, that uh, historians, film historians, cinematographers, different people have picked up on and said, when you look at the footage that was shown on the news, to American audiences, you can tell that there's like some soundstage aspects to it. Right. So you never see like in front, like you never see below the camera, right? It's, it's in one position. There's a horizon in every single shot. There's no like, there's, and there's never really any like hand holding the camera and like walking around, which you would think maybe like, you know, the astronaut would do that. I, it's just kind of odd. Um, there's also, if you really, really look, there's there's like these weird blue lights in the background that, you know, could be stars or something passing by on the moon, or it could be uh, reflective light from a soundstage. And then building off of some of the more technical things, there's just a lot of, along with like the math behind the 237 miles, Danny, when he goes into room 237, is wearing an Apollo 11 sweater, which Kubrick didn't have to have him wearing an Apollo 11 sweater. He goes into the room and there's a key dangling out of the lock. There didn't have to be a key on the lock. The key has a, a tag on it that says room 
in capital letters, R-O-M-M, and then the numerical abbreviation for number, which is N-O, but only the N is capitalized, the O is smaller, and then it says 237. So from that, you can make the distinction that the the two words that it's trying to, to spell out are moon room, and within this room is where all the secrets happen, where no one can talk about. DeCaloran's told him you can't talk about what happens in or I'm nothing's happened in there, but you may never go in there. There's all these secrets that have happened in there. It's kind of like the haunted past of the hotel. So this is kind of Kubrick's nod of saying, this is my secret that I've been asked to keep. And he's, you know, there's this documentary, there's these clues that he's left. It's all throughout pop culture. The Red Hot Chili Peppers in the song Californication have a line, space was made in a Hollywood basement. That's an that's an ode to what Kubrick's done. Uh, I I think that it's it. Watch the documentary; you can make sense of what we're saying. I think that it's pretty pretty on the nose. And, and I think it's important to say that it's not that we don't think that we went to the moon. Absolutely not. Sure, we went to the moon. We've got technology. NASA is great. I love NASA. The Silver Scream's official position on this is that man has been on the moon. Man has been on the moon, but the technology to relay that footage back to Earth. Also, how yeah, how are you doing that in the sixties? How are you how are you taking video and sending video in nineteen sixty? I don't know when the official moon landing was. Um, and sending it all the way back to Earth. If it's 230,000 miles away. Also, Danny wearing the Apollo 11, you know, if this is set in 1980 or even like 77, it's not like Danny was alive during... 1969 was the moon 1969. Yeah. So D- Danny, I guess he could have been born in 69, but it's not like he was like wearing that sweater watching the footage, right? So why, why would they choose that? Maybe it's Kubrick just like tossing out like little pieces of meat for people to you know go crazy over. It and could that's like, the one big red herring. Absolutely, it, it could. It could also. I mean, listen. With any conspiracy theory, you can always, if you look hard enough, you can make something out of yeah. anything. <laughs> for sure. But however, just just interesting, just extremely interesting to see all the nods to you know the moon in in this movie. So about a month has passed now, and a news report pops up uh, warning Colorado residents of a severe snowstorm about to pass through. Danny's keeping himself occupied by racing around the hotel on his big wheel, while Wendy goes to check on Jack, who's trying to write in the Colorado room. She tries to make small talk and tell him about the storm coming in, and he just completely snaps on her out of the blue. She leaves confused about his mood change, and the next time we see her, she's running outside uh, the next day with Danny, while Jack stares slack-jawed out the window, seemingly in a trance. Now, this is the first time we really see a big shift in his demeanor. Like, he talks about being a little tired earlier, but hasn't really shown any hard signs of a swing this big. And this kind of goes back to, like, uh, what Stephen King, uh, another gripe that he had with it, was about the casting of uh, Nicholson. Because the novel version of Jack was supposed to be a stable man who slowly descends into madness, whereas Nicholson, uh, just by his demeanor, like, as a person, just kind of seemed a little off from the start. Like, the drive up and everything, like, I made a note of this when I was, like, doing my first watch through for it. They're just, like, he seemed, like, a little tense and just, like, something was bothering him. And uh, throughout the film, like, it's it's like that. You it's Maybe it's Jack Nicholson, but you can just never tell if he's, like, being serious or just being a sarcastic asshole. Well, even when uh, he phones Wendy to tell him that, to tell her that he's got the job, and she says, sounds like you got the job. And he's like, 
yeah, I got a lot to do up here. You know, he doesn't even really answer directly. He is just being a dick. So days pass and the storm gets worse. Wendy tries calling out on the telephone but can't get through, so she heads to the radio in Mr. Ullman's office and gets a hold of the park rangers, who tell her it may be best to leave the radio on for now. Danny is back on the move through the halls, and as we follow him, he turns a corner to find the twins standing at the end of the hall in front of him. In unison, they beckon him to come and play with us forever and ever. Shout out to the intro of this podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And then gruesome visions suddenly flash before Danny's eyes as he sees the aftermath of their murder. He covers his eyes to stop the visions, and when he uncovers them, the girls are gone. You'd think such visions would scare a child into their room for the rest of the winter, but not Danny Torrance. He was back out on his big wheel and this time strolled on into the forbidden room 237. While Danny played detective, Jack was having nightmares at his desk, and when Wendy came rushing in to assure him it was okay, he confided that he just had the most horrible nightmare where he chopped her and Danny up into little bits. Just then, Danny strolls into the room with neck bruises and a ripped-up sweater. Jack looks on casually as Wendy accuses him of doing this to their son as she carries him away. Now, fun bit about this is when uh, she carried him away there, it was actually a, a dummy of Danny. And Danny Lloyd, the actor, originally thought the movie was a drama, not a horror film. He never saw the uncut version of this film until he was 17 years old, oh 11 years after he made it. Before then, he was shown a heavily edited version of the film. That's awesome. I would love to see that version. <laughs> well, and yeah, and that's why they had to use a dummy in that scene because in a lot of the other uh, shots of him, you can kind of tell that, oh, they tell him, they're probably telling him that, yes, it's a family drama, things are a little heavy and everything, but Shelley Duvall's really given it to Jack Nicholson in that scene. And so there would be no way to kind of protect him from the themes and the elements that are going on. So that's why they had to use a and dummy. Stanley Kubrick, like throughout the filming of this movie, was very protective of uh, Danny Lloyd. Uh, so being falsely accused of child abuse has really chapped Jack's ass. So he goes storming through the halls of the hotel and eventually stumbles across the grand ballroom. He strolls in and sits at the empty bar and remarks that he'd give his soul for a glass of beer. All of a sudden, he begins addressing an unseen bartender named Lloyd. When the camera pans back to the bar, it is suddenly fully stocked with a bartender standing there. And Lloyd provides him with a drink while he begins to air out his dirty laundry like any good bar patron does. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the key moments in the movie because... Uh, unlike in the novel where he finds the scrapbook, which kind of leads to the possession, you hit it nail on the head with, I would give my goddamn soul for a glass of beer. And then he's rubbing his eyes. As soon as he opens them, boom, there's Lloyd. And that's our first look at one of the quote unquote ghosts of the Overlook. And so that's kind of the moment I feel like that he's signed his soul over. Mm-hmm. Now he keeps talking to Lloyd as if they've known each other for years as when he comes running in, seeing Jack sitting at the empty bar. She tells him that Danny has told her what happened and that there's someone in room 237 who tried to hurt their son. Jack goes to check it out and finds a beautiful woman getting out of the tub and calling him over to her. She pulls him in for a kiss, but when Jack opens his eyes, her body has changed drastically to that of an old woman with sores all down her back. She begins to laugh maniacally as Jack backs out of the room and heads back to his wife. When Jack returns to the room, he tells Wendy that he didn't see anything and that maybe Danny gave himself the bruises on his neck. Now, Wendy suggests that they get him out of there post-haste and to a hospital, at which point Jack snaps and storms off again. He finds his way back to the grand ballroom, only this time it's packed with a fancily dressed partygoers. He stops by the bar to get a drink from Lloyd and then meanders around the room, uh, eventually bumping into a waiter who then spills something on his jacket and insists they go to the men's room to get him cleaned up. While in the men's room, Jack learns that the waiter's name is Delbert Grady, which he recognizes from the story that Mr. Ullman told him when he was hired. Jack keeps insisting that Mr. Grady killed his wife and daughters and was the groundskeeper here before him, to which Mr. Grady replies that Jack is, and always has been, the groundskeeper here. He should know, as he's always been here as well. 
Now at this point of the film, like the weird occurrences are really, like, really starting to pile up like the visions and everything like that with Jack. Uh, I know you were mentioning earlier that like in the book, it's like insinuated that Jack uh, can shine as well in the movie. We never really like are told outright that Jack has this ability. You're not, but then you're, yeah, you're just supposed to infer because, uh, Dick Halloran saying that he and his grandma used to do it. You assume that it was passed on throughout the generations of that family. And so Danny had to get his ability from someone. For sure. And, and because Wendy someone. never sees anything, you, you not know until, that it's because, not until, not until the, the uh, end. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Which we'll talk about that Yeah, soon. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I mean, you absolutely, you think that it's Jack. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Grady lets Jack in on a little secret. Turns out that his son is trying to bring an outside influence into the hotel. And that influence he's referring to is Mr. Halloran, the head chef. See, Danny has been sending him visions of room 237 throughout, like, this film. We see, like, visions of Danny, like, shaking violently and, like, drooling and everything, which, and uh, shots of Mr. Halloran back at his home in Miami, uh, kind of receiving these visions, like, seeing these things that he's seeing as well. Just an all-time flex for Scatman Crothers in that scene <laughs> where he's laying in his bed, <laughs> the feet up on a pillow, such a power move. Uh, yeah, <laughs> murals on the wall. We'll talk about those. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which this all prompted him to try and contact the hotel to check in on the family. And when he's unable to get a hold of them, he hops on the next plane for Colorado. Back at the hotel, Grady tells Jack a story about one of his daughters who didn't like the hotel when they first arrived either, and tried to burn it down. He had to correct both her and his wife when she tried to protect her from him, clearly insinuating that he gave him the axe. In their room, Wendy is trying to figure out a plan of escape to get Danny help as he is now sitting in his bed saying, Red Rum, Red Rum, over and over. As Wendy tries to snap him out of it, Tony chimes in and says that Danny isn't here. He's gone away. Mrs. Torrance. (laughs) Exactly. So now she must go track down her husband. Armed with a baseball bat, she heads for the Colorado room where Jack has been writing and finds his typewriter flanked by hundreds of pages with the words, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, typed over and over in just like various formats and like styles and everything. So I, I want to jump in with a question real quick. Did you guys have a favorite page? Because when I went back and rewatched, I was like, wow, there's some really actual funny iterations of those phrases. And like the upside down and triangles and like there's the upside like down that. triangles. There's one where it looks like he's like, he writes all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And then it's like, he's citing himself. There's like indentations on both sides of the page, <laughs> but it's obviously just the same quote over and over. So yeah, I was cracking up. I don't know. It, uh, it sounds like you noticed yeah. a, cu- a couple different ones. Yeah. And uh, some sneaky camera movement shows us that Jack is sneaking up behind her asking if she likes what he's got so far. Uh, in my personal opinion, I thought it could have used a little more character development at that point from what we read. Pause for laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Writer's block had really hit yeah. by that point. Yeah. I'll, I'll cut that down so it sounds like you guys got it right away, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy becomes almost paralyzed with fear as she backs away through the giant room with Jack assuring her that he's not going to hurt her. He just wants to bash her brains in. Uh, she continues to back away, swinging the bat to keep Jack at bay. When she gets to the top of the stairs, she finally lands a blow, sending Jack tumbling down to the landing. With Jack incapacitated, Wendy drags him through the kitchen and into the dry storage pantry where she locks him in, telling him that she's taking Danny to see a doctor. Jack tells her good luck as he's already sabotaged the radio and the snowcat, her only chance of escape. Now at this point, Mr. Halloran has landed and is on his way up to the hotel in a rented snowcat while Jack sleeps off his concussion in the pantry. He's woken up by a knock on the door and hears Grady outside who's rather upset that he let his wife get the best of him. Grady decides to give him one more chance to prove himself and unlocks the pantry, freeing Jack to finish the job. 
which is like the first real, real act of the supernatural that we see in the film. Mm-hmm. Back in the Torrance's room, Tony is upstairs chanting red rum again and ends up drawing it in lipstick on the door. And when he starts to yell it, Wendy wakes up and grabs a hold of her son, seeing the reflection of the lipstick in the mirror that spells out murder. Right on cue, Jack shows up with an axe and begins chopping away at the door, sending Wendy and Danny running for the bathroom to lock themselves in. Now, a fun fact I read is the props department originally made weaker doors for these scenes, uh, but when Jack Nicholson tore through them too quickly, they had to go back and actually make stronger ones for these for these scenes and then redo all of them. Yeah, because Jack, in his earlier days, was a volunteer fireman. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he saw a door and an axe and said, Psh, I got this. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> Tee them up. And then they end up going through, what, 63 different doors? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Due to all the takes and, and doors destroyed. Mm-hmm. Trapped in the bathroom with her son, Wendy is uh, opening up the other small window to try and escape. Any other time of year, there's no chance they make it out through here, but thanks to the winter storm, there's a huge snowbank that goes right up to their window on the second or third floor. Danny manages to get out and slides down the slope to safety. Looks so fun. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that every, it every it. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, just as Danny makes it to the bottom and Wendy tells him to run and hide, Jack starts taking swings at the bathroom door. He makes a large enough hole to stick his head through and deliver the iconic, here's Johnny. Uh, now, Kubrick, being from England, had no frame of reference for this line whatsoever, as he'd never seen the Johnny Carson show. Uh, so this improv line almost didn't make it through the cutting room floor. It's so iconic, though. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows, even if you've never seen The Shining. Like, Even if you've never like seen you. the Johnny Carson's show, yeah, yeah. I feel like the you generation uh, that we're in and everyone younger than us probably know Here's Johnny, thanks to The Shining and Jack Nicholson, yeah. and not the Johnny Carson talk show. <laughs> That's right. I would love to know what some of the other improvised lines were that Jack came up with. Because Stanley is known for like letting his actors just go. At this time, both Wendy and Jack hear Mr. Halloran's snowcat pulling up to the front of the hotel. Jack abandons the bathroom door and goes to find him as he enters the building. Mr. Halloran slowly walks through the lobby, calling out for anyone, and as he reaches the end of the walkway, Jack ambushes him from behind a pillar and buries his axe in Dick's chest. Being connected through the shine, Danny screams out as this happens, giving away his hiding place. Jack hears this and gives chase as Danny makes way for the giant hedge maze outside. Meanwhile, Wendy has left the bathroom and is running through the halls of the hotel, knife in hand, trying to find Danny. Which leads us to one of the most bizarre scenes in the film that stumped most viewers for years. As Wendy reaches another floor, she looks down the hall to an open door where she sees a man in a dog costume, or a bear costume, depending on your interpretation, looking up after his, having his head buried in another man's lap. Now, did you guys uh, get a chance to like look up the, the actual meaning behind this scene? So, this scene has puzzled me for years, mm-hmm. along with everybody else. Mm-hmm. It was one of the scariest shots in uh in the film when i first saw the movie just because it was so confusing and it is kind of wendy's first glance into the madness that the hotel uh beholds the way i've read that it's interpreted is that that's supposed to be one of the old owners of the hotel and that i see it as a bear costume and that bears along with everything else that's in this movie has they are um, kind of sprinkled throughout where going back to their apartment in Denver or Boulder, wherever it is, uh, Danny has bear stuffed animals on his bed that are right next to him. That's his like pillow. He's yeah. Lying on. Yeah. And then he brings a, a bear stuffed animal with him up to the hotel room. And when Jack is, you know, working out his writer's block and he's throwing a yellow tennis ball up against uh, the hotel wall he loses it at one point. The, the ball just kind of rolls off screen and he lets it go and he wanders over to the hedge maze uh, 
and that ball as it's rolling away rolls right past the same piece of carpet that Scatman Crothers Dick Halloran is murdered on and then you don't see that yellow tennis ball again until it's rolled towards Danny right before he goes into room 237 so there's all these connections between bears and there's a big bear um fur that's displayed up on the wall in the Colorado lounge and so what i think it is is an inference to sexual abuse between Jack and Danny where um you know Jack within the past in the past whether it's been during a, a blackout or kind of during one of these uh, drunken drunken stages of his but that there has been some form of sexual abuse because it looks like the man in the bear costume is giving the person who works at the uh, you so. said you know you know his head's buried in his lap mm-hmm. so you can infer what's happening there yeah well and the, and also like this and so their costume the like the butt flap is open right 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 which yeah. is you know telling in its own right and yeah so that i think is shelly duvall's moment the wendy torrance character her moment of realization is to yes my husband has been abusing our son hmm. is that what you had that was one of the things that popped up okay. the one that i the one that i saw that i like wanted i wanted to look this up because you know it's this scene is placed in here and it seems to like at first glance doesn't have any like place whatsoever in the rest with the rest of the film. There's never been like, you know, anything they, they didn't see visions of this or anything throughout. Uh, what I read on there is that this is one thing that Stanley Kubrick left in, uh, from Stephen King's original. Uh, however, he did it in two seconds. What took, uh, King about two and a half pages to talk about where the man that was laying down, uh, getting receiving from the, from the man in the dog costume, uh, was the original, one of the original owners of the hotel. Uh, the man in the costume was uh, named Roger in the book. They talk about how Roger is kind of this, kind of this like almost jester like character where, uh, the owner kind of parades him around and makes him do embarrassing stuff like, Uh, for the entertainment of other guests and everything like that. So this is, um, in the book also, Jack Torrance, uh, is very concerned about like, you know, the owner, who the owner of the hotel is like that plays a big part in it and everything. He, he's trying to find this out, threatens Mr. Ullman's like reputation if he doesn't tell him. And so the character in the costume is Roger. And it's kind of like that symbolic submission to the owner of the hotel that he like put up with and everything. And there was also mention of a tryst between the two of them. Now, while Wendy continues her search through the hotel, encountering a man well-dressed and bleeding from the head, Danny is doing his best to lose his dad in the hedge maze. It's proving to be rather difficult, though, as he's leaving tracks in the snow. But in a moment of cleverness, Danny walks backward, retracing his steps, and then crawls to another path, covering his tracks as he goes. Back in the hotel, Wendy runs to the lobby where she finds it completely dark, covered in cobwebs and skeletons sitting at the tables decorated for some kind of party. She flees and comes across the elevator we've been seeing in Danny's visions throughout the film. Just as those visions foretold, the doors open and a torrent of blood comes pouring out. Now, Stanley Kubrick is known for his compulsiveness to get the shot right. Uh, He managed to get this one right in three takes. Now, while it seems like a major achievement for someone like him, until you learn that each attempt took about nine days to set up. Each time the blood would pour out, Kubrick would say it doesn't look like blood and they'd have to reset. So between the three film takes and all the practice runs, this one shot took almost one whole year to get right. Can you imagine like being like Max, you and I have like worked on film sets before. Can you imagine like taking a year to get one shot right? Uh no, that would be insane. However, I mean, 
also Kubrick is has been toted as a genius, mm-hmm. um, and so I think, especially at this point in his career, he could do whatever he wanted, and he could tell anyone anything, and they were they were all for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's interesting that he cut all those all those shots together and actually found a, a good shot. Another fun uh, part about that scene, like that scene uh, made it into the trailers for the film. And originally uh, the theaters and stuff wouldn't show trailers that showed blood like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to kind of skirt that role, Kubrick told them that it was rusty water and that's (laughs) how it made it into all the trailers for the film. So after his dad moves past the last traceable steps, Danny runs back the way he came and exits the maze in time to see his mom running to him. They both enter Mr. Halloran's snowcat and drive off, leaving Jack Torrance to freeze to death alone in the hedge maze. After we see the shot of the angry icicle, we get a slow dolly shot back inside the hotel up to a wall of photos. The photo that comes into frame is one from a 4th of July party from 1921. Standing prominently at the front of the crowd is none other than Jack Torrance. And that's the end of the film. that's the end of the film. (laughs) Where do we begin? (laughs) So, I, I guess we'll start here. So, um... Max and Alex, as horror fans, do you, I want to ask, do you consider this a horror film? And I'm asking because Stephen King came out after this film's release and stated that he didn't know how people were scared by this movie. Very vocal about his displeasure with the casting choices and sticking to the source material. What do you guys think? Well, this is what I kind of touched on in, in the intro where I was overthinking it for a while and then I just said, no, let's do it. Let's talk about it as a horror film. I'm going to consider it as a horror film. This movie scared me before i had even seen it i, I kind of have a funny little story here written down the first time i was ever exposed to anything from the shining uh was actually in the 1996 disaster film twister where <laughs> one of the tornadoes rips through a drive-in movie theater and what everyone's watching on the big screen is the shining and of course they show the grady sisters in the hallway as danny's rounding the left the 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 uh, hallway and making that left turn and sees them And so right then and there, I knew at age six or seven, whenever it was that I saw Twister that, oh shit, I never want to see this movie Uh, because that (laughs) that scene alone was enough to scare me. And it wasn't even in the, you know, it was a scene in another movie. And so then when I finally saw it, I had this just impending sense of dread, which I think Kubrick and King both wanted to deliver throughout the entire film. So yes, it's, it's a scary movie in the sense that you can, and I've talked about this before on Excuse the Intermission, but my favorite kind of scary movies are the ones where you can watch them two or three times, but then it's not until your third or fourth or fifth viewing that they really get under your skin because you know certain scenes are coming or you're looking at it through a different lens. And that's what makes your skin crawl, the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's happened with me on the Room 237 scene. It's happened to me before with uh, the man in the dog costume, bear costume, whatever you want to call it. When I know certain scenes are coming in this film, I- I'm very scared. And and so, yes, I, I do believe that it's a, it's a drama and, and for, you know, for 75% of the film, it's just a family drama, but that 25% of it, that's meant to really scare you. It, it, it delivers on it so well because the drama aspect of it has this crazy sense of dread, just pulsating throughout it. Yeah, I say I say definitely this is a horror movie, and and probably one of in my personal ranking one of one of the best, if not the best. Um, it, it, and it's a lot like a movie we've done on this podcast, Hereditary, where you're right, the the family drama is is huge in it. Um, but I think 
the the way it, it like lulls me into a trance every single time um, I watch it where where I like you I start it you know it's it's hard to to look away and and it's definitely a movie that that brings me in and and takes a hold of me I mean it it's something that like you said chills chills you to your bone and, and that has to do with with the sweeping camera shots it has to do with kind of the mundane dialogue that's going on and and the continuity errors that you're noticing in the background, the music is just insane. We should shout out those two women right now. It's Wendy yeah. Carlos and Rachel Elkine. They deliver an, a phenomenal score to it's this It's just an film. amazing one that, that, again, it just, it lulls you into this, like, I don't know, like, it's this weird dreamy experience that you're watching this and then and then when the the weird scenes start happening the 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 grady twins you know in in the hallway who are dead or or walking up the the stairs saying i'm gonna bash your brains in i mean the intensity it just it it really frightens me every every single time i watch it yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i think it's absolutely considered a horror movie it has i mean it has all of the the pieces that you would want it to have it has ghosts and a scary driving main character that is like batshit and you don't know what he's gonna do the kid is like i mean he has the shine um which alone is like terrifying because you've never seen that before no one's ever you know talked about that in um in the context back when this movie came out and I just think that the as you're watching the whole movie, it's absolutely captivating and is terrifying from the moment that it starts. You, it's piqued your curiosity of like what is going to happen to these people, and you know that something bad is going to happen, and then it unfolds into just this pure kind of terror, and like you don't want to go to hotels. The it, bathtub scene alone of that lady terrified me for absolutely. many years. Well, come. and that's what makes it one of the best. Because you can watch it on the surface as just like a fun popcorn flick that is a horror film because it's a ghost story and all this thing and all this stuff. Uh, but then you can also watch it for kind of the metatextual aspect of it. Some of the, the conspiracy theories that we've talked about, you know, is this um, an allegory for the genocide of American Indians? You know, there's kind of that uh, line that Ullman, the hotel operator, says to, you know, Wendy at the beginning, very nonchalantly, but... Oh yeah, this house or this hotel was built on an Indian burial ground, and I think they actually had to repel a few attacks during the ma- you know during the building of it, the construction, and that right there alone tells you that oh shit, okay, yeah, this was built on you know false false pretenses, and this shouldn't have happened, and you guys are going to have hell to pay for it. Fun. Uh, another fun filmmaking part of this. This was one of the first films to use Steadicam technology. Shout out Garrett Brown. Well, Kubrick was notorious for how he treated his talent to get the best out of them on set for uh, the copious amount of takes. Uh, this is one that that I found, uh, I kind of chuckled at this because Max, like I was saying before, we've worked on films together. And actually one of the first films that we worked on, I think you know what story I'm going to tell here. Um, it was a, a short film called Just Different. And we had uh, Max playing a bartender and I was, we were trying to get this one line of dialogue correct and everything. And for whatever reason there was, it was just a little hang up and I could not get him to like, just read the line, like in a certain way. And we, I don't know how many takes we did, but oh. it definitely wasn't hundreds of takes. Like, <laughs> it definitely was not a, Kubr- a Kubricky in amount. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, <laughs> that's, 
that was mainly it wasn't it wasn't you demanding more takes that was mainly my fault <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a fun it was a lighthearted like you know just like come on let's just get the line right and like it was fun we were we we're friends so like it, it was it, just it was extremely frustrating though by by like you know the 10th time <laughs> to be on that side of it I can imagine. <laughs> you know <and laughs> the not feeling being, of i'm slowing everything down now <laughs> absolutely so I, I can't imagine if if i'm on a, a kubrick set and and he is making me do a line over and over and over and uh, the, you know there are lots of documentaries about the making of this movie and I know there are clips of, of Scatman uh, where, like, he he really did not handle it well, as well as Shelley Duvall. He, he, she wasn't able to, to handle Kubrick's intensity. Granted, he was probably, you know, over-intense, but there's clips of Scatman, like, crying. Like, yeah. and, and Shelley has said, like, I'm, I'm very happy I was there, and I, and I love Stanley, and, I, and working for Stanley was great. But I would never, ever, ever do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jack echoes that sentiment. Jack Nicholson said, "You know, I've, it's very rare that I've seen an actress be treated mm-hmm. the way that Stanley um, treat." And he heralds her for her performance and sticking Absolutely. through on it. Um, that's kind of something that's aged the best for me too. Is Jack's willingness to buy into Kubrick because Jack Nicholson is notorious for hanging around on sets on his off days. You know, being in the background of A Few Good Men while Tom Cruise is right. delivering his speech just so that he can have that, that back and forth that go between, between the two actors. And so, yeah, there's some really funny clips on YouTube of Jack right before he's about to do the famous door scene with the ax. And he's just pumping himself up, swinging the ax around like, come on, Stanley, let's go Stanley. Um, <laughs> so yeah, for, for all the people who don't mesh well with Kubrick's way of filmmaking, I think that much to Stephen King's chagrin, Jack Nicholson was cast perfect. All right. What about uh, likes and dislikes for everyone, Kristen? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest dislike is that it didn't follow the the book for me, obviously. But in general, I mean, like it's a it's a good movie. I'm not going to take that away from it. But I'm a bigger Stephen King fan than I am Stanley Kubrick, so I side with Stephen. I think my biggest dislike is that I I have watched this movie. For over 10 years now, multiple times, many, many times, and I still don't really understand what's going on. Like, I still don't, and especially now that I'm, like, you know, knee-deep in, in a lot of the conspiracy theories, like, there's still a lot of unanswered questions from this film, I feel. And I, I think, you know, my biggest dislike is Stanley's not here to let us know. I think the movie is, from what I'm hearing from you guys, the movie is completely different from the book. And I think I think you do have to kind of look at them as two different entities, right? I mean, totally. I, and you know, yeah, sure. I do need to read the book, and, and then I can I can see see what that's all about. But for this movie, I mean, I honestly, I, I think it's I think it's close to a perfect movie. So I have a ton of stuff that we haven't really touched on yet uh, that I like from this film. So I'm just going to kind of go chronologically how they uh, appear in the film. I love, we'll do the broad ones real first. We already talked about the score, but just to give it one more shout out. Yeah. Uh, the score in this movie is phenomenal. I really love the scenes um, where the music, the music really amps up the scenes where uh, you, you see the Grady girls in the hallway for the first time. And there's this big percussion and it really, that gets you almost more than seeing the twins there because they're just staying there and they're not doing anything crazy. It's not like Danny turns the corner and he sees them chopped up immediately, but it's the way the music hits right there. The room 237 scene, because Danny is shining, he's showing 
Dick Halloran what's happening right there. And it's this high, high pitch. And then it just drops down to nothing as, as Jack, your, your POV of Jack and you're moving through the room. So the way the music just builds up and then just drops off right there is really good. And then Wendy's run through the hotel at the very end when she's finally starting to hear all the voices in the hotel and you can see her, she's looking around. You're supposed to know that she's hearing the hotel kind of speaking to her, telling her to either get out or, you know, whatever. So I really like that. And then just the setting and the sets overall, I think that every Kubrick movie always to me feels like he's pulled something from 2001 Space Odyssey, especially at the beginning scenes of that movie where they're in the different uh, offices and things like that. Just the way that the chairs look, the way that um, railings look, things like that, especially in the moon room, room 237, that bathroom is just so meticulously crafted. I love that. But then things within the film, I always love when movies have title cards and the way that these title cards are presented, there's 10 of them I counted. It's first the interview and then closing day. The interesting thing about closing day, and you talked about this, Derek, is that yes, they say that the seasons run from May to May something like May 15th, I believe it is, to October 30th. So then on closing day, you're left to infer that that's Halloween. Halloween so yeah. they move into the overlook on Halloween and then you get a month later, which is a lot of what people don't like about the movie is that real quick ex- escalation into uh, kind of their life there. And then it gets really disorienting because you get Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, and then you just get 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. And so that I but I really like it because it, it keeps you grounded a little bit while still disorienting you, which I think mm-hmm. is a pretty cool trick. You talked about the steady cam shots. I love those, especially it had been used in some other films previous to this um, Rocky Marathon Man and Bound for Glory. But what was great about this is Kubrick had Garrett Brown, the inventor of the steady cam on set with him. So he was able to ask him, hey, what if you dropped it really low to the floor and we follow Danny on the trike? And that's why those scenes are so Mm -hmm. um, effective, because you almost feel like you are a ghost or you are Danny and you're down moving with him. So I really like that. There was one point uh, I read that uh, this movie like was supposed to originally take like six months, I think, to to shoot like not not a long period of time. But because of how long it ended up taking it overran its time and everything. Uh, one of the cameramen was actually flying back and forth between uh, Europe where the where the sets were built. Uh, the soundstage was uh, flying back from back and forth from Europe to Los Angeles to shoot uh, another to shoot another movie. So it'd spend a week in Los Angeles and then fly out on Sunday to Europe to like film a week on the to go back and keep working on the shining because of how long the film went over its time. Um, I got to give a shout out. This is one of my biggest likes in the film. Wendy's outfits are on point. <laughs> like Wendy's wardrobe is so great. It starts with that blue dress when she's eating uh, lunch with Danny at the beginning, and she almost looks like Olive from Popeye. And then it's hilarious that her next role is, is Olive. Olive in Popeye. <laughs> um, and then yeah, when she goes to the radio to call the forestry department, and she's wearing that yellow jacket that's got like the different teepees on it and things like that. I'm just like, God, if you ever found that jacket at a thrift store, that would be like the all time find. You know, mm-hmm. that would be everywhere. Uh, and then, of course, the iconic brown overalls with the green and white checkered shirt underneath and the turtleneck. And then it's crazy because all she does is don a blue robe over that. And that's her outfit for like the rest of the film, which kind of leads me to my next uh, point that I really like and that I want to talk to you guys about. When do you think the third act of this film really starts? Because it's about an hour and 10 minutes into it to where Jack's in the closet he's in for the rest of the movie. Danny's in the clothes that he's in for the rest of the movie and Wendy's in those brown overalls. 
So you could say that the third act really lasts like the second half of this film, but then that's before the big dinner party scene with Grady in the bathroom, and it's before he gets let back out of the freezer and things really ramp up. So when do you guys really think that like the third act of this film starts? So I think that moment could kind of solidify like where the like it kind of cements where the characters are at, like in the movie and everything. They don't change much after that point. You could say that maybe maybe Jack like is probably the one that changes the most uh, from that point to the end of the film and everything as he just like slowly descends further. His mental demeanor, absolutely. Yeah, but as far as like him seeing stuff and everything, he's already started seeing, you know, Lloyd the bartender and things like that. Uh, Danny's already been shining and everything. And, uh, you know, Wendy's kind of experiencing all this, like, you know, in, you know, as an outsider almost, like between between everything else that's going on. I would say that the third act of the film probably starts at the point of the big party scene. Like when, when he meets Grady and really tells, like, you know, learns about what's been going on and like is revealed to, you know, when Grady tells him, you've always been the ground ke- groundskeeper here. You've always been here. Cause I've always been here. What, what about you, Kristen? I think it's probably the freezer scene to be honest to me personally. I just think that that's like, I think when he comes out that that's really when it, picks up i mean it's already kind of picked up by them but for me personally as a viewer that's that's when i think that the shit's really gonna happen Mm -hmm. well you get this sense right then that no matter what you you think that no matter what wendy and danny do that the hotel's just out to get them at that point yeah Mm -hmm. so I, i i would go with the party scene but i will say i think it's like right after the one month title card which is extremely early in the movie um, when Wendy brings him the fate, uh, the plate of food or, or ask him. She asks to asks read what him, he's been doing. Yeah, what, what he's been doing. And he puts the paper down and he kind of just sits back and is just like, how about this? You don't talk when I'm typing. You hear typing? You don't talk. And I think that is like the, the moment where like, okay. Kind of the tipping point. Here he, here he goes. And I think from there, like, it's just a, it's just a thrill ride from there. I, I feel so bad, like, laugh. It's, it's, I've, I'm comfortable enough that I've gotten to the point in this movie where in his real first break, I can kind of enjoy it and laugh at it just because he's acting. His acting's like capital A at that, oh. at that point. And then Shelley Duvall is so annoying and like, you almost like 10% understand Jack's frustration where she's just like, well, Maybe I'll come back and bring you some sandwiches and you can let me read something. And he's just like, no. <laughs> when I'm in this room, yeah, you leave me alone. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting the, the way that this movie's paced because the first act's real short, mm-hmm. you know, and then the middle act, it's kind of tough to say when, it's, when it ends at least and then, you know, going into the third act. And then the last thing that I have here kind of goes hand in hand that I really like in the movie that I didn't really pick up on until this time, but... Every single time that you see a ghost, it's accompanied with a mirror. Mirrors yeah. are a huge part of this movie. And so I have it with Lloyd. You know, he's he, when he walks into the gold room, that bar has just a, a, a big mirror behind it. No liquor on the shelves or anything like that, like most bars. And then you get Lloyd. So it's kind of like Jack looking back at he's looking through the mirror at part of the, the history or the, the hotel's history. And then also, too, with the women in room 237, he's in that bathroom, and there's mirrors on, either, on side. either side of it. And then also, his big conversation with Grady happens in the bathroom behind the bar in mm-hmm. the gold room, 
where obviously mirrors are very apparent there too so i really like that and then also too in the freezer scene even when grady finally lets him out there's no mirror per se but the freezer door is this real reflective kind of shiny metal that that he can see himself in so you can almost like say that like because you never see grady in that scene like when he's locked there in the pantry and everything you only hear grady's voice but all the other times that they that he has these interactions there's a mirror present Mm-hmm. So maybe it's like a you know him looking at his reflection and like remembering these things. That's, that's like how I do it. Reflecting yeah. on you know things from the past. Well, Definitely, it, it could also be that none of these ghosts are actually real, and like Jack is just creating all of these mm-hmm. with this interaction with himself in the mirror. Um, well, that's the tough thing. I think there's like two versions, at least two versions of everybody who he interacts with, because Ullman at the beginning tells him that Charles Grady was the previous caretaker. And then when he meets Grady, Grady says his name's Delbert. And that kind of leads me to my next thing is that there's the presence of doubles in this film is incredible because you get the two Grady's and then we keep calling them the twins, the shining twins. They're not twins. They're two sisters. Ullman even at the beginning says one of them was eight, one of them was 10. And so they're doubles of each other. And then there's two mazes. You get the hedge maze. And, and then the, the table maze. And then the table maze, which he looks over mm-hmm. as he's, he's shining at one point. And then Wendy even mentions as Dick Halloran's giving them the tour through the kitchen at the beginning. How do you like it so far, Miss Torrance? She goes, it's so big, I feel like I need to leave a trail of breadcrumbs just yeah. to find my way out. Which is then basically how Danny gets out at the end. He follows right. his footsteps, which are like his breadcrumbs to get out of the maze. Uh, and then you also get the two women in room 237 who are kind of doubles of each other, one before, one, you know, one postmortem and one alive or whatever. And then the two paintings that we kind of talked about earlier in Halloran's bedroom, even when he's shining, there has to be, you know, he's got the one naked woman above his TV. And then looking back or looking, looking at, at each, each other, other yeah. there's one above his bedroom or yeah. ab- above his bed. And so that uh, is almost kind of like, you know, he needs, he needs a double. There needs to be doubles present for someone to be able to like tap into their ability to shine. found that pretty interesting um, on this rewatch. Just a tons of, tons of stuff I like. The one thing I, I dislike about the film is Kubrick's reaction to the negative response where he then went and made like an international cut where he took 21 minutes out of it. And he kind of let uh, the peer pressure of the critics and maybe of Stephen King a little bit kind of get to him. And, and second guess his work. And so I just think that that's kind of aged poorly because Kubrick, you're, you're a genius. Don't, don't, don't ever do that again. Well, you can't now he's dead, <laughs> but, but yeah, don't ever second guess yourself. But I think like, it definitely great. did affect him because that was uh, one of the stipulations uh, for Stephen King to get the rights back to do the made for TV series was uh, Kubrick said, look, you need to stop, you know, criticizing my vision of the film and everything publicly. And King agreed to that in order to be able to make the, the TV series that he wanted to the, his original vision for the, for what was supposed to be the movie. Well, and with, with the whole cutting 21 minutes out and whatnot, and when the first weekend, this movie is originally released in 1980, there's a different ending that then Kubrick goes in and takes out before that next weekend. Um, and it's said that Kubrick was editing this movie up until like the day it came out. Wow. Um, and the, the, the different ending is, is Danny and Wendy are in a uh, hospital and Ullman comes and gives Danny, I believe it's the yellow ball, uh, 
and and gives that and checks on on them and also mentions that Jack's body was never found. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think you're right. I think Kubrick probably maybe was like, that's one too many questions or was listening to the noise too much and decided to take it out. I would love, I would love to see a cut with, with that and see how it lands there. Even though I think the ending he chose, you know, ultimately ends up with is, is pretty well done. And then I like this too, just, uh, it's great that we're recording this now, uh, in the year 2021, because that last shot of the 4th of July ball in 1921. 1921. Yeah. So like, are we going to have a hundredth year overlook celebration <laughs> this 4th of July? Like we can, we should. Why, well. why not? Right. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, so this is another film with a very small body count, uh, Good Lord. excluding <laughs> the visions that we see of the murdered Grady twins as those occurred prior to what we're seeing in the film. Only two deaths occurred during the time covered by it. Uh, so which of these two deaths was your guys' favorites? <laughs> <laughs> we can't choose the twins? Yeah, I guess if you want to. <laughs> yeah, not twins. Sorry, yeah. it's doubles. The doubles. Uh, well, yeah, it's got to be it's got to be Dick Halloran. Uh, I just feel like that every single time that happens, I'm I, I'm still surprised at how well they're able to hide Jack behind that last pillar coming down the hallway. It gets me every single time, and and the pacing between Scatman Crothers' delivery of those lines, where "Hello, is anybody here?" and you're just like, "Fuck, it's happening." No, it hasn't happened. Oh, it's gonna happen now. Oh, no, it's gonna happen now. And then finally, when it does, and the music hits, and the edit happens so quick. To where it's like you hear Jack scream and that axe is in his chest. Mm-hmm. It happens so quick it gets me every time. That's so. that's one of the scenes that Stanley like did like probably forty two takes of or something. Just killing Scatman. Oh my god. He did not really care for Scatman that much. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely I like I prefer that death. If uh, I have to pick a death. <laughs> I, I was curious as to how you were going to approach this, though, because if we're going to go off of just, like, who's our favorite dead person in the hotel, oh, yeah. I do love the guy who has the split forehead and the blood mm-hmm. coming down. He just toasts a cocktail to Wendy. And he's like, great party, isn't yeah. it? Or something like that. Yeah, that guy's great. But no, of the on-screen deaths, it's got to be Dick Halloran. Yeah. Dick Halloran's great, but I- I'm going with Frosty Jack. Oh, okay. Oh, no. no. Uh, that, that, <laughs> listen, that I remember seeing that for the first time, and that it's still to this day. It, it gives me chills, like, and the fact that you know, <laughs> but uh, sh- yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just I love the the quick cut of it, and 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 it's just right there. Yeah, you can tell it's a freaking you know uh, body. You know, it's not a person, but I think it's really well done. Yeah, it's Jack. Yeah. What's, what's yours, Derek? I think I'll uh, I think I'll go ahead and make it a tie inside with Max here <laughs> and go with uh, Jack Torrance sitting in the sitting in the snow outside. Uh, there's something about that image that you know, like you know, it pops up you know throughout you know it's gift now so many times like and everything you see it pop up everywhere and everything. It's just one of those things, one of those iconic images that's like seared into uh, pop culture and. Uh, it's very similar to that shot of him earlier in the film when, uh, like right after he has that first big snap at Wendy, uh, the next day when we see them, you know, running around outside and he's standing there kind of like, yeah. I think that's right eyes, before the Thursday, you know, cut. head yeah. down, eyes forward, like that sort of like just thousand yard stare and everything. And yeah, his eyebrows in that scene, he looks like they're horns, like, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. That's a crazy good, crazy good shot. So yeah, I stick it. I'll, I'll go ahead and, uh, place my place my flag on the jack torrance death 
popsicle jack mm-hmm. <laughs> angry icicle all right so for the new people in the room after we talk about the films we got to give them a rating and on this podcast we use the scream scale for the uninitiated the scream scale is a scientifically perfected system where we award the films that we watch a number of screams from one to ten uh let's go ahead and start with our guest host alex how many screams are you giving the shining well, it should come as no surprise to you guys or the listeners, seeing as how I picked this <laughs> film as my favorite scary movie of all time, that I'm giving it 10 screams. 10 screams. Very I, nice. I mean, I think it's one of the best horror films of all time. It's probably in the top 50 just movies of all time for me personally. And it's real tough. I'm kind of like with Max right now. I want to go back and watch all of Kubrick's things right now. And I love Eyes Wide Shut. People people who know me know that I will live and die uh, for that film. But, you know, this movie, it, it teeters back and forth between between being my one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. So that says a lot. Great. Kristen, how about you? I'm going to give it eight. I would give it ten because I like the book so much. But I'm giving it eight as the movie. But the miniseries, I give a 10. For anyone who wants to watch the miniseries, huge fan. Does that have the the hedge animals in it? Yes. And no maze? They're, just watch it. <laughs> I don't want to give how it about away. you? Uh, I, uh, this, this movie's a 10 out of 10. Like I said earlier, it's, it's practically a perfect movie. Between this and, and probably 2001, A Space Odyssey, Kubrick, who could be our greatest living director that we've ever had, um, you know, it's it's probably one or two as far as his, his masterpiece. What about you, Derek? As for me, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give this film seven screams. I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I kind of teetered on this too. Like I almost gave it a little bit of a lower score. Like when I was first thinking about it uh, after what after doing my first watch through to like really uh, sit down and kind of break it down for the synopsis and everything. I'm I watch a film and I'm like taking these notes and everything about what's happening, and ultimately it all gets condensed down into the synopsis that we read off here. Um, so my first watch through and everything, I'm kind of like looking up and down between my tablet and. Uh, the film and everything so first watch there I w- after i got done with it i was like man there were like a few things that you know like didn't quite make sense and everything but after going through and doing my second watch through to like really just kind of soak the film in and everything like that i started to like see a few things that like i had missed while i was like looking down and typing and everything like that and you know kubrick's visuals and things like that me as a filmmaker like these are the kind of things that i aspire to you know one day you know be able to pull off myself and everything so i you know, that's my that's my rating for the film. Uh, this is normally the part of the podcast where we roll our cinema selection dice, but we were planning on a little bit longer of an absence for you, Kristen. So we booked another guest co-host for next week as well. Uh, they've already selected their film, and it's another really good one. I can't wait to have them on to talk about it. Now, if you all out there want to get some hints as to who our guest is and uh, what their film could be, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Scream Team Pod. Uh, please give us a follow rate this pod and share it with your friends spread the screams and that'll do it for this week's episode i want to thank alex again for taking the time to join us and break down his favorite horror film absolutely this was a pleasure i mean anytime you want to talk about kubrick anytime you want to talk about uh, a film that maybe has a little bit more nuance than just your regular slasher sign me up 
All right. Max and Kristen, thank you both for being such awesome co-hosts again. And to all our listeners out there about to accept that job at a vacant hotel for the winter, maybe just give it a little bit more thought. Maybe. Uh, Thank you all so much for joining us on another episode of the Silver Screams podcast. Once again, I am Derek. I'm Kristen. I'm Max. And we'll catch you next time. Stay spooky, Scream Team. Thank you.